I still remember it was early one morning a number of years ago. I was driving Amanda to Logan Airport. She was going to go visit her family down south. And we were just about to go over the Neponset Bridge, going from Quincy into Boston. When all of a sudden she said, Stephen, stop. We have to turn around. I don't have my purse. I immediately pulled off the road. And you know, you quickly do the calculus in your own mind. we wondering, okay, is there a way that she could still get on this flight without her purse? She's going to see family, so whatever needs she has or anything like that, okay, they can take care of it there. But it only took a split second for both of us to conclude that this would be impossible because her driver's license, her ID, was in her purse. So had to turn around, race back home, and then race back to Logan. And I won't say that it was due to my incredible driving ability, but it was due to my incredible driving ability that she still made her flight that day. Now, I want to note that when it comes to packing for trips, well, first of all, when it comes to preaching, any illustration like that that I give about my wife, I am not foolish enough to do without running it by her ahead of time. So she thinks that this illustration would be good for all of us as we think through this passage. But secondly, Amanda is very meticulous when it comes to packing for trips. I forget things far more often than she does, but this instance, this one single solitary instance, still gives us laughs, particularly when we drive over the Neponset Bridge, because it is the one time that Amanda forgot something. If you think about it, she could have forgotten her blow dryer, her carry-on bag, her suitcase, her cell phone charger, her coffee, her glasses, her iPad, a book to read. You name it, she could have forgotten any of those items. And yes, she would have been inconvenienced, but she still would have gotten on that plane. Yet the one thing she ultimately needed, that ID, that was the thing that she did not have. As Christians, if we are going to prepare ourselves for Jesus and the salvation that He brings to us. What would you believe that should be packed in our lives? Prayer? Reading the Bible? Gathering together week by week for worship? Serving others as we see they have need? All of these are appropriate, even important, in the life of the Christian. But in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, John the Baptist, this forerunner preparing the, the people who Jesus has come to, to, to redeem, come to bring salvation, John addresses the one thing that his audience does not have. They lack repentant hearts. What I'm going to, by God's grace, show us from Luke 3, 1 to 20, is that repentance is absolutely vital in preparing us for the salvation that Jesus brings. Let me repeat this. It's a big idea of the sermon. Repentance is absolutely vital in preparing us for the salvation that Jesus brings. I invite you to follow along silently as I read from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Our pattern, our habit week by week is to open God's Word as we journey through a book of the Bible. We happen to be in the Gospel of Luke right now. And so my goal is to bring out from the text what it means so that it can be accurately applied to us today. So the most important thing that you will hear over the whole course of this sermon is not what I will say, 
but what God's Word says to us. So follow along as I read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of, the prophet, of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. May God write His Word upon our hearts this morning. Four things that we are going to see about repentance as we walk through this passage. If repentance, as I argued at the outset, is absolutely vital in preparing us for the salvation that Jesus brings, we're going to look at repentance from four different angles in this passage. First, in verses 1 through 6, repentance prepares us for salvation. There is something quite fascinating that we find at the outset of Luke 3. Do you see? Just take a cursory, cursory glance there. I'm not going to read the names again. I just butchered them for you once. But you see, Luke records the names and titles of various officials, both government officials and even high priests in the temple. 
And he records this in order that we might have some historical context for these events that are, that are unfolding. But I think he also records them for another reason. Luke wants us to see what is ultimately significant. Not what we in our minds conflate with significance when considering the events of the world, but that which is ultimately significant. Consider this. I remember watching the late night votes in the House of Representatives just last week. On the 15th vote of the week, Kevin McCarthy finally won the speakership of the House. You turn on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, any other channel that produces the news, and it is high drama of great consequence and importance. And yet, Luke and John says to you and to me, not so fast. Before you get consumed with what you think is high drama in Washington, there is a message of far greater significance right here that you must see. Brothers and sisters, do not mistake smallness, do not mistake apparent unimportance in the eyes of the world with a lack of true significance as relates to the world, eternity, and our souls. What happens in the Bible, what happens in God's Word for us, and what happens in God's people amongst us, even week by week gathering for worship, is of far greater significance for all of us than anything that happens in Washington or on Beacon Hill or on Wall Street. So Luke says in verses 1 and 2, all of these people, they're in positions of power. They have great prestige. And look at what is truly important. Let me introduce you to this guy who comes out of the wilderness preaching a message that people don't understand. Look at how John is described in the latter part of verse 2 and then into verse 3. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If we're honest, calling people to repent is, frankly, an interesting opening act. If Jesus is the headline artist to the Gospel of Luke, John is the opener, the lesser-known one who is coming to, 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 to prepare the crowd, to prepare the audience for Jesus who has come. You might think, wouldn't it have been better if John came on the scene telling all who would listen, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you want to know it? No, John comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. When we think of repentance, probably all of us think of various things that come to mind, many of which are perhaps uncomfortable. Repentance involves vulnerability. It involves openness. It involves admitting confessing that there's something wrong, that there's something off about me that I am responsible for, something that I have responsibility to address. Now, we're going to get more in depth on what repentance is in a moment, but right now we're just considering the concept of it and why John would show up on the scene preaching this message. What John is proclaiming for his audience to understand is that repentance is not a terrible medicine that we all have to take. Sometimes we might think of repentance as, 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 as if we are like a five-year-old who has to take a terrible tasting medicine for a sickness we have, and mom and dad have to hold the five-year-old down and like hold the mouth open and pour it in. 
Repentance is this necessary evil that we have to get over, that we have to navigate, that we have to be coerced into with the promise of ice cream or dessert afterwards. But actually what John shows us, and we all lock in on this, we have to understand this. Repentance is not the sour-tasting medicine that we have to grin and swallow and get over with. It's actually a life-giving drink of cold water to the parched soul. Look at verses 4 through 6 as John quotes from the prophet prophet Isaiah. John quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 40, he writes, as it is written in the book of the words of of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I wonder, okay, what's Isaiah talking about there? Mountains lowered, valleys lifted, curved things straightened. Well, in Isaiah's day, when a king or powerful, important dignitary would be visiting a town or community, the townspeople, the citizens, were expected to build a smooth road through the countryside that that dignitary or king could travel on and arrive into the town with great pomp and celebration to the adulation of the citizens who have been awaiting his arrival. So what John is showing us, what Isaiah is showing us, is that repentance, taking ownership of our own sin and forsaking it and stepping out of the darkness and into the light of God's grace, this is the means by which our hearts are prepared to see God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. In repentance, the highway is paved for you to encounter and be transformed by King Jesus. So at the very least... John is laying out before us, he's saying, before you see Jesus, you must see yourself. Now we've considered repentance, how it prepares us for salvation, but now let's continue on and see some of the more nuts and bolts of what repentance actually is. As I said a few moments ago, it's a term that perhaps many of us are familiar with or you may have heard in times in church in the past, and yet you might not have great clarity what it actually is. John is going to help us. First, we have a warning about what repentance is not or does not do. So repentance, secondly, verses 7 to 9, it does not presume salvation is ours. So repentance prepares us, verses 1 to 6. Repentance does not presume in verses 7 to 9. John says to the crowds, John the Baptist there, verse 7, he said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You might be thinking, pause here, you might be thinking, okay, I could I could, I, could, I could go with this opening act of John talking about repentance. Maybe not the message I would preach, but, you know, to each his own. But now you start to hear what John says, and he doesn't sit down with his audience and say to them, hey guys, we need to, we need to talk about a kind of tough subject. 
No, he starts the first words we have of him, well, after quoting Isaiah, is he says, you brood of vipers. He's calling them snakes. <laughs> you snakes. You're living a lie. He's addressing his Jewish audience here who he says they're presuming upon God's grace because of their heritage, because of their lineage, as ones who have come from Abraham, this patriarch, this father of the people of Israel. Now, I suspect that many of us are not wrongly trusting in our Jewish heritage today as a means of earning or achieving or experiencing the grace of God. So the responsibility for us is not to look at these who are Jewish in John's day and say, hmm, We wouldn't do such a thing. No, our responsibility is to look and consider where we might presume upon God's grace. Do you assume that things are on the level between you and God because you were baptized or confirmed or dedicated as a child, and maybe even you give financially to the work of the church? You just assume, hey, I think I'm I'm okay. All seems to be right. Do you assume that you are spiritually all set because one time you made a decision to walk an aisle or you prayed a prayer at an evangelistic event and you seem to do something that others said, okay, that makes you a Christian? Do you believe all is spiritually well with you because you can intellectually assent to solid theology and doctrine? You would say, I know the Christian faith well, I read my Bible often, I have a a shelf or two of theology books at my home that I love to read, or that I've read a number of times. I can articulate the doctrines of grace. I even see the errors of those around us and how they have departed from the faith. There's a warning here for us not to be so right in our theology, yet wrong in our hearts. Here's what I mean. We can drive to church on Sunday morning, even on a day with crummy weather like today, and you can even drive past 5, 10, some of us even 15 churches between our homes and this facility. Churches that we believe in many cases have forsaken the message of the gospel and embraced the spirit of of, of the age. And you can arrive and you can take a seat in your pew, you can sing songs, you can sit under the preaching of God's word, you can enjoy the preacher's rhetoric, be fascinated by the Bible, and yet still totally miss the boat. This is the kind of thing that John is addressing. His Jewish audience, they called a brood of vipers, they knew their Bibles. But they did not know the God of the Bible because they did not know their own heart that needed to repent. Let me illustrate it like this. When I was a child, some of you have heard me tell this story before. When I was a child, probably five or six years old, it was my birthday, and my grandfather, all of us were at my grandparents' house for the weekend, and so there were probably 12, 13, 14 of us there, grandparents, my parents, my siblings, my aunt and uncle, their kids, and my grandfather was going to take the whole family to dinner wherever I wanted to go, because it was my birthday. So everyone asked me, Stephen, where do you want to go for dinner? Where do you want to go for dinner? And I said, well, I want to go to Red Lobster. I had never been to Red Lobster. I guess I like the commercials on TV. This is not a dig at Red Lobster. I... For all I know, it's fine, but I wanted Red Lobster. Everyone else in the family was kind of surprised by this, and they all looked at me like, are you sure that's what you want? Could we talk you into a steakhouse? Could we talk you into somewhere somewhere other than Red Lobster in Arkansas, okay? Think about it. Seafood, not fresh off the boat that morning, all right? But Stephen wanted Red Lobster. So we go to Red Lobster, and Grandpa's going to pay for the meal. I still remember those crisp $100 bills in his wallet. 
that he was going to pay with. So it comes around, everybody's seated around this big table. Maybe I had like a birthday boy hat on or something or another. It comes around, the, wa- the, the waitress is taking all of our orders, and it comes to me, and it's my time to order. And I look at the menu, and I decided I was going to have a cheeseburger and french fries off the kid's menu. I dragged my whole family to Red Lobster so I could order a cheeseburger. We need to be careful when we consider ourselves and even in the life of the church that we don't think that just because we're sitting at the table, just because we're gathered with the people, that we're eating the same meal of God's grace and of the truths of the gospel as those that are sitting next to us. This is what John is getting at when he's calling and warning his audience. People who profess to be servants of God, who think they're eating the feast of God's provision, but though they are at the table, they're eating from another menu and they believe themselves to be entitled to God's mercy. Presumptuousness poisons the soul. Presumptuousness takes the heart of the professing Christian from a place of, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, to an attitude that's more like, Lord, it's about time you got here. I've been waiting long enough. May we all consider our hearts May they not be presumptuous about salvation. So repentance prepares us for salvation. Repentance does not presume upon that salvation is ours. We've seen what repentance is not. Now let's see thirdly, repentance produces changed lives. We turn the page a little more to what repentance now is. We've seen what it is not, and now we see how it prepares us for salvation. And how it changes us. It's a transformation of the heart. Let's pause here and let's consider this term repentance. It's been the forefront of the sermon today. Now let's talk about what it is. I think a very basic definition or way in which I try to help myself and others think about repentance is three ways. Conviction, confession, correction. Okay? Sometimes when we think about repentance, we think it's Okay, this, this feeling of conviction that I have in my heart where, okay, I, I, I've done wrong. I've sinned against another person in my attitude, in my conduct, in my interactions with them, and how I've treated them. Anything like that. I've sinned in, in, in my, against God in my, my unbelief, in my, in my, in my uh, anger against Him, in my, in, my, in my lack of trust in Him, my lack of faith in Him, whatever. We, we, we feel this conviction But repentance is not just conviction, it is also confession. It's confessing it to God. It's crying out to God, God, I have sinned against you. It's bringing it to the light uh, with other brothers and sisters in the faith saying, I am struggling with this sin or I I, I am struggling uh, 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 in this way in sin against God. In my greed, in my envy, in my lust, in my pride. 
But it's not just confession in the sense of confessing it verbally and acknowledging it, but it's confession with an aim towards pursuing correction. It's an aim towards transformation. It's an aim towards hearts that are seeing the sin that is brought about through the conviction of God's grace and confessing it and asking others to walk alongside of us and then pursuing correction. Not that I will come back around all the time, all the time, all the time and say, hey, I'm still struggling with the sin or I did it again, I did it again. That happens, but a means by which by God's grace we are transformed as it is brought to light and God changes us. Repentance is the means by which the sinful, God-denying, God-not-trusting, maybe, maybe the person who knows God is out there, yet they fear walking into the light and being seen by God. Repentance is the means by which they walk into the light, and it is the means by which they see Christ. But here's the wonder of what John is preparing his audience for. Everybody get with me on this. He's preparing them that they might see Christ and not be squelched because all of their warts have been brought to light. No, he's preparing them that though their warts, their sins may have been brought to light, that they may be met by the warm embrace of this Jesus who is yet to come. That's what John's preparing his audience for. The problem is they don't see it. In our human life, we walk around as if we're wearing these straight jackets that we tell us are freedom. Freedom to set the, own co- the course for my own life. Freedom to do as I please. Freedom to go about my business in the way I want to do it. Hard-heartedness, stubbornness that tells us whenever some fault of ours is brought to light, we can chalk it up to, well, nobody's perfect. Or did you see what the other guy did? No, repentance is laying one's life on the line and allowing God to do heart surgery on you. Replacing that heart that wants to stay in the shadow and stepping out into the light to trust God who would make you into a new creation. There's action to repentance, not for action's sake, but as evidence of transformation. John was not opposed to those who came to him as he preached repentance because he didn't like them. He was opposed because he had seen no transformation in them. These people are lining up to be baptized as if it's just one more religious act for them to do, to have stamped on their loyalty card, hoping that when they get to the gates of heaven, they'll have enough stamps on their card and be able to say, see, I'm here. I did all my things while I was on earth. And John says, no, it's not about that. It's about your heart. Has it been stamped new by the grace of God? That's what John is getting at. Look at verses 10 10 to 14. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He's just told them, don't just come and be baptized for the sake of baptism. They say, okay, what do we do, John? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Do you see this this nature of correction? This aspect of repentance being found in correcting? Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him. And said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collectors in John's day, they would 
they would collect what was supposed to go to Rome, and then they would extort and collect a little more that would go to their pockets. And John says, nope, just do what you're supposed to do, and don't extort or take advantage of others. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. John used three examples here, sharing with those in need, not stealing or taking advantage of those under you. And he's showing us that we might think that repentance is something that is done at the outset of the Christian life. Like it's the door by which I enter into Christianity. I confess before God, I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need salvation through Jesus' death on the cross in my place. All of this is true. But what John is showing us is that repentance is not the door by which we enter the Christian life. It is actually the shoes by which we walk the whole of the Christian life. I had another illustration here. It's not the vaccine that inoculates you for, for life like a child receives a polio vaccine and they know they'll never have it again. It's the pattern of life. Repentance is the means by which somebody eats healthy, takes their vitamins, exercises. It's the pattern of the Christian life. The first theses of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the door at the church in Wittenberg, starting the Protestant Reformation. Do you know what that first thesis was? That very first point that Luther wrote. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he entire, intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. You see, what we can be very, very, very subtly led to believe in our hearts and the deception that would want to cause us to shrink back from bringing our sins to light with one another and even before God. We can believe that our sins brought to light will break us as if we are birds and our wings will be broken and we can no longer fly. But repentance is the means by which we receive that grace that binds us up and enables us to fly with broken wings. So as we think about this, think carefully. Think realistically. Each of us, whether you are a Christian or whether you are still trying to figure out this Christian faith, and perhaps all of this has sounded quite odd, if that's the case with you, if you're still trying to sort through the Christian life and, 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 and what it means to follow Christ, and you've heard this basic message that Jesus died for our sins and we come to him by repentance, but you, know, you still feel like, okay, there's a lot more I need to learn here. I, I would love to speak with you after our service and, and, and either set up a time, maybe we could have coffee or, or, and, and talk this further, or, or maybe give you a couple resources you can read, whatever you would like, but there is no more important thing that you can give consideration to than this. And now for Christians, as we think about this realistically, the danger, like I said, I used an example previously where we acknowledge, okay, nobody's perfect, but the danger is for us to kind of shirk back from repentance. As if it's like that New Year's resolution that we make to exercise, but by the second week of the New Year, the treadmill or the exercise bike is actually serving more as like a coat rack than anything. It's there. We think we have enough of it there that, okay, it'll get us by. But no, 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 no. Think realistically. Dear Christian, is repentance a regular mark of your life? We're not talking about blanket confessions. I'm not perfect, but I try my best. No, do you invite the Spirit of God? Do you invite the people of God, your brothers and sisters in the church family? Do you invite them to be the means by which God graciously reveals sin that you need to confess and pursue correction? 
Do you repent in generalities or in specificity? Take stock of your life as you consider your, this point. If your life is paltry in repentance, it's paltry in genuine faith. In fact, if repentance is not part of your life, you reveal that your faith does not rest in Christ's righteousness, but it rests in your righteousness. Let me say that again. This is important. If repentance is not a hallmark of each of our lives, dear Christians, we are actually revealing that at the root of our heart, our hope does not rest in Christ's righteousness, but in our righteousness. John gives his audience specific examples here in this passage of what repentance looks like because he knows repentance is done with specificity, not in generality. So let us have a practice, a pattern, a commitment with one another, brothers and sisters, in this church family in 2023, that we are going to welcome others into our lives in the church family, that we're going to confess our sins to one another. Since we're, I'm, I'm having a hard time trusting God with this right now. And we're going to bind one another up, and we're going to pray with one another, and we're going to uphold one another in the grace of God. And then a week later, the one that was confessing the sin to one is going to confess, it's going to be roles reversed. At least that's how it is with me, because I have enough sin that it's always coming to the surface. And husbands, fathers, let's commit that we will be the chief repenters in our households and in our marriages. Because we want ourselves, our families, our loved ones, our church to see Jesus, who can only be seen clearly through the eyes of repentance. So lastly, repentance prepares us for salvation. It is not presumptive. It produces life change. And lastly, repentance trusts the promises of Jesus in verses 15 to 20. It trusts the promises of Jesus. Keep in mind, John is preparing his listeners and he's preparing us to see Jesus. And yet, as he's talking about this, some are wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? Look at John's response to this question in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John knew that he was preaching a message that demanded response. But Jesus who would come Via the, uh, would, would come and would transform via the Holy Spirit of God, taking hold of and transforming lives of the repentant. This echoes the message from Isaiah earlier in the chapter. Prepare the way, straighten the path. Repentance prepares the road for the triumphant King Jesus to enter in. And now John wants his audience to know that he is buckling them in for the journey, that he is setting up the wood, but God Himself must send the fire. Only Jesus can ignite hearts from, seeing that from, from, from repentance to now seeing and trusting the Savior. The eyes turn from looking down and looking at one's sin, one's shame, one's burdens of their own sin, one's hurts that they have uh, felt inflicted upon them or even inflicted upon others, and seeing their eyes lifted that they may see Christ. This is why this is a message of paramount importance. Frankly, we don't see John much else in the Gospel of Luke. He's kind of a one-hit wonder. But this is a great hit. 
He wants his audience to see Jesus in the fullness of his beauty. He doesn't want them to simply agree with Jesus. He wants them to adore Jesus. And we will only adore Jesus by first seeing our great need for Jesus. Do we want to experience the great power of God in our church in 2023? As I said earlier, we must be a church where repentance is at the forefront of our hearts. Where self-justification is abandoned and left in years past. And we walk solely by the grace of God. And we must also understand that John helps us to see that repentance not only helps us to look at Jesus who has come, but helps us to plan for Jesus who will come. This is alarming, to say the least. Picture in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What John is showing us is that Jesus will one day return, and like a farmer harvesting his crops, he will bring in all that has been harvested from the fields, but some is is wheat that will go to the harvest that will be brought into the barn, but some is chaff that will be thrown in the fire and discarded. And John is saying that, that, that all who have the appearance of some sort of religiosity or all may have the appearance of even looking as if they have appreciation for and, 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 and worship of God revealed in, in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, our triune God, and yet they actually are not repentance. And they will be thrown in the unquenchable fire for those who do not know Him. This is the warning for us to heed, preparing us to see Jesus. And I am strangely comforted by this message for two reasons. I'm strangely comforted because as I consider how we are going to encounter Jesus and I consider how my own heart anticipates all that awaits us in the Gospel of Luke, I need something somewhere to place the sins that would obstruct my view of Jesus, the sins that would obstruct my trust in Jesus. Repentance is where I take those. Leaving them in the hands of God because they are too big, they are too invasive, they are too corrosive, they are too destructive for me to hold in my own hands. And secondly, there's something interesting here as we consider trusting in the promises of Jesus. In verses 18 to 20, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but basically it tells us, and John preached the good news, but Herod didn't like what he was preaching, this message of repentance, so he threw John in prison. reality is this message of repentance is difficult to swallow. It's hard for those who are unrepentant, who don't want their sins brought to light, who don't want to confess their sins before God, who want to be the ones who are still captain of their own soul and master of their own destiny. This message of repenting and following Christ is foreign and even harmful in their eyes. I'm strangely comforted by this because we too live in a day where opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ runs quite rampant. You're far more likely to be called a bigot or told your faith is out of step with our day and with this age than for someone to walk up to you on the side of the road and say, excuse me, sir, what must I do to be saved? You see, the power of the gospel of God at work in His people 
is seen in days of great growth in the church, but also, as John shows us, in great rejection of the message of the gospel. So as I was thinking, even through preaching this message of repentance, I have a friend who I've shared the gospel with a few times uh, over the last number of months, and I've invited him to join me at church on a few occasions, and um, I was thinking about inviting him this week, and I even had a twinge of like, oh, the message is on repentance. Maybe that might not be the one, because my tendency is want to, to want to be able to engage with somebody and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true. But what John shows us is that God's wonderful plan for our life is actually to surrender control of our life in repentance and receive the life that is offered to us in Christ. And what this does is this underscores the need for us, church family, to pray together as a church. Praying that God would give new birth, give power to our evangelism day by day, week by week. Bring the spiritually blind that are in our lives to what? To repentance. As I thought about repentance and how properly understood it brings people to be able to see and to savor Jesus Christ as the Lord of their hearts and the one in whom they can rest. It struck me, how can we have so great a message yet lean on something so meager as ourselves to proclaim it? We cannot lean on ourselves. In prayer, we must lean upon God. One thing you see in the letter that our elders have prepared, an exhortation to our church where we are able to gather together at our Sunday evening prayer services, Sunday evening services, where we pray for our evangelism. And we pray that God would bring new birth the spiritually dead. Do you know how the grace and power of God begins to work in a church? His church starts to take seriously the responsibility to be a people of repentance. Not because we want to afflict ourselves with agony. We don't say, hmm, so-and-so over there is looking a little too happy. Let's go find something that we can bring to their eyes that they need to repent of. No, no. No, 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 no. So-and-so over there, I pray that their heart, worn out, exhausted, frayed by sins that they're aware of or maybe even by sins they're unaware of, God help them to see the dead end destruction of their own sin and to taste anew the goodness of Jesus who has conquered their sin on His cross. There are all kinds of wonders that we'll see when Jesus comes on the scene and begins His earthly ministry, even next week in Luke 3, 21-4.13. But like Amanda with her purse and driver's license, we are not ready, we are not able to board if we will not see Him and treasure Him via repentance, if it is not at the heart of who we are. Repentance is absolutely vital in preparing us for the salvation Jesus brings.